All right, open with me in your Bibles to Exodus 3. We're going to move it right along to Exodus 3. We're going to look at the first half of that chapter, actually, um, for this Sunday's purposes. We'll continue next Sunday, and we'll do the second half of uh, chapter 3. And then chapter 4 is very connected as well, so it'll be a very similar theme, although it has lots of truths under the one theme that we'll be looking at. I'm going to read just a little further than our actual text, just so we get the context um, this morning. No, um, Exodus 3, and we're going to end the text at, for, uh, at verse 12, but we're going to read up to verse 14, just for context, just a couple more verses. So if you're physically able, please stand for the reading. Of God's holy, inerrant word. All right, hear God's word to you this morning. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire, from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are approaching or oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. <laughs> Thus ends reading God's holy, 
inerrant word, may he bless our hearts and lives this morning, you may be seated. You see why I had to keep reading a little bit, right? We will pick it up there and get more detail from there on next week. So don't worry if you think I missed something. I'll try not to. All right, so my brothers and sisters in Christ, think about this for a minute. 40 years. We're talking 40 years. Now that's a long time for us mortals. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about it, me at 53, soon to be 54, that's three quarters of my life already. That's what 40 years is. And that certainly puts it in perspective for me of how long it's been for Moses. The Bible tells us in Acts 7, just so you know I ain't making this up, that Moses was 40 when he fled to Egypt and that he then spent 40 more years in the desert in Midian. And that's where he was raising a flock. He was tending his father-in-law's flocks. Um, he was a shepherd. He went from being a, a prince, as it were, of Egypt, right? Um, raised by uh, the princess to going to Midian and becoming a humble, lowly shepherd. And I thought it was interesting when Pete preached last week that um, it makes the note of the Bible says that when the daughters of Jethro reported the whole incident of Pharaoh help, of Moses helping them. They said to him, an Egyptian helped me. So that made me think, so Moses must have been dressed and looked like an Egyptian. Does it make me think, walk like an Egyptian? Anyway, so he, sorry, I didn't have my head. But so when he came at first, he was uh, in uh, Egyptian guard. But now we're talking 40 years, no longer dressed like an Egyptian or with all the privileges thereof, thereon too. But instead he is a, a humble shepherd. And our text tells us, this is really interesting, that this day that we're looking at starts just like any other day that Moses had for 40 years. You know, think about that. Talk about routine, right? Talk about, you know, the word we use, monotony. And I remember so many times I'd go to work when I was a waiter and I'd say, hey, how you doing? So and so and that. Different day, same what? Same stuff. That's Moses. Different day, same stuff, 40 years. Well, this day would prove to be very different. It's going to be extremely out of the ordinary, to say the least. I always think about how Rocky Balboa would have put it. This is highly irregular. <laughs> It was definitely highly irregular. As a matter of fact, this day would be the day that would absolutely change Moses' daily routine, tra transform his entire life, and it would set him on his course to fulfill, literally, his eternal destiny. You know, the destiny, the very purpose for which he was born that we read about in the earlier chapters of Exodus. The reason why he was delivered via a tiny little ark. The reason he was able to be raised by his Hebrew parents and yet at the same time have all the training available to him in Egypt. And now finally the day had come at age 80 where God says, okay, now we're going to start I don't know about you, but we're talking about 65 retirement. And at 80, God says, okay, I'm about ready to get going. 
And this will be the day that God sent him, sends him to Pharaoh to bring his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, what we as readers know is that back in the day, this is what really hit me as I studied for this, some 40 years ago, Moses already tried that. You realize that? He already gave it the old college try. So Moses could say, as he's listening to God, been there, done that. As Pastor Pete uh, rightly pointed out last Sunday, Stephen in his speech in Acts 7 verse 25 says that Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but what? They did not. 40 years ago, he thought, they're going to rally. They're going to see, I'm God's man. And it sent him, they sent him packing with his tail between his legs out to running away into to the, uh, the desert. Now here's the question. Why didn't his attempts to deliver God's people work back then? Now, of course, from the divine side of things, ultimately the answer was, it wasn't God's timing. Amen. But I think there's a more specific answer, and I think D.L. Moody really, he, he hits it out of the park when he says this. He says, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was a nobody. He spent his third 40 years discovering what God could do with a nobody. You know, that's so good. I want to go, amen. Let's I mean, that, that's it, right? That's what this text is all about in many, many ways. So we're going to start uh, this morning taking a look at this main theme that will be developed in the next two or three sermons because really it's chapters 3 and 4 are all one big conversation, a dialogue between God and Moses. But we're going to see this. As the Lord calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and to bring his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, we're going to see three things this morning. He reveals himself, and we'll only begin to look at the beginning of that. Next week we'll get even more into that. But we'll see the first part of that. He reveals himself. He reveals his plan to a servant Moses. And he, he, he reveals his promise to him. He gives him a promise. So he reveals himself, his plan, and his promise. Those are the three things we're going to look at. So let's take a look at the first one. God reveals himself to Moses. As I mentioned earlier, the day started out like any other ordinary day for 80-year-old Moses, now a shepherd of 40 years. But he came to Mount Horeb, which he calls, in the text notice, the mountain of God. And Moses notices something that was anything but ordinary. And I don't know if you picked this up in the text. There was a bush that was on fire, but here's the weird thing. There was no smoke. How many fires have you seen with no smoke? Now, why do I say no smoke? Because the bush was not being consumed. That's what the text says. In other words, it wasn't being eaten up. It was a fire, and the bush was still whole. And he thought, what in the world? As we would say in Italy, estrano something. And molto strano. It's very weird, very different. So he figured he'd go take a closer look at this incredible phenomenon. Now, it tells us in the text, when, when the Lord saw that he went over uh, um, to look, to get this close up, the Lord called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And then we get uh, Moses' response, here I am. 
But here's the unexpected thing. So God calls to him, right? You're calling me. So here I am. And then the next words that God speaks are very um, surprising. Look at verse 5. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So the first thing God says to his servant Moses is actually a warning. Enter at own risk. You ever see that sign? It's like, uh, what does that mean? What God says is don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because you're now about to enter holy ground. Now here's the question. First of all, here's an interesting fact. Uh, some of these uh, you know, little trivia things uh, when, I, when I'm studying, I'm like, wow, I never saw this before in my life. This is the first time the word holy is found in the Bible. We went through the whole book of uh, Genesis, and it's the first time. Check me on that. So here he says the ground is holy. Now here's the, point, here's the thing we have to ask. Why is this holy ground? What makes, what makes this dirt or sand so special? We know what makes it special, what makes it, uh, turns it from ordinary dirt to something that's very holy. And it's simply this, God's presence. When God is there, that's holy ground. The presence of the Lord. When God, the living God, the God of all creation is present, that is a holy place. And what, what God is simply saying is that, Moses, you need to acknowledge this and out of respect and reverence, you need to take your sandals off. Take those things off. Now, no one actually knows why, you know, what, where that custom comes from. Some say that servants, when they would go to their masters, would have to take their sandals off. But whatever, whatever reason you, you may come up with, we do know God told them to do it out of a sign of reverence and respect. What do we get from this before I even move on? We're talking about God revealing himself to Moses. The very first lesson Moses gets is that God is a holy God. He is completely separate. And I know I use this phrase a lot, but boy, it's really true. What God is saying is you better recognize I'm not your buddy. I'm not your pal. We are not equals. You know, some people even see it this way, and I'm going to bring this up just so you understand. They say, here's God and here's the devil. <clears throat> here's God. You know who the devil's equal with? Michael the archangel. Not God. God is totally other. He's totally separate. He's holy, holy. There is no one like him. In a complete league stratosphere, different than we are. The very first thing that God reveals about himself here is I'm a holy God. Now, there is something incredible. I've read commentaries. I've listened to sermons. And everybody goes on and on about what does it mean? What does it symbolize, the fire in the bush? And I'm not going to go and give you the long list of things. The text doesn't actually come out and tell us. But I'm going to give you just, I think, what makes the most sense. We know throughout the book of Exodus and later in the Bible, in many instances, fire represents the presence of God. We're going to see that in the book of Exodus later. 
So certainly that, but what is the bush? I believe the bush is uh, analogous to the people of God. That somehow the holy God is in our midst and we are not consumed. That's what I think is going on. By God's grace and in his mercy. Because he's not only a God that's far off, he's also a God who is near. Because the very next thing he reveals to Moses is this. I am the God of who? Of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, I'm that God. I'm the personal God. I'm the one true God. I'm the true God of the patriarchs. In other words, I'm the God who your father worships, Moses. The God who your father and mother taught you about. I'm the God who revealed himself to Abraham. You remember Moses, the God who said to Abraham, um, I will give you a son and I will bless all nations through this son. You know, the one who when your wife's womb was dead and it was physically, humanly impossible to have a son, I gave you one anyway, miraculously. That's the God I am. You remember the God of Jacob? The God who turned that rascal and deceiver from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, the one who wrestles with God and man and prevails. That God who keeps his promises. Now notice Moses' response to this revelation. Thank you, Lord. I was wondering when you were going to show up. I've been waiting here 40 years. I've been praying. Man, let's get going. Is that his response? Actually, this is the only time in this whole dialogue Moses doesn't say anything. What does Moses do? He hides his face because he was afraid, the text says. He was afraid to look at God. Now, before I mention the second thing we see in this text, I got to say something. You ever notice when people who say they have visions of God today, how they talk? Oh, I had a vision of Jesus and I just had, I felt so warm and I had this total peace over myself and I just had this great euphoric. Is that the experience of people in the Bible when they meet God? What's the experience of people in the Bible when they meet God? They're scared to death. They hide their face. <laughs> in other places, they fall to the ground. I'll give you a good example. Another uh, example of, and it also occurs in a call where God's calling one of his servants to serve him. You remember Isaiah 6. God appears to um, Isaiah. And what does Isaiah say? Woe to me, for I am undone. <laughs> That's what happens when you meet the living God. When he reveals himself to you. Sorry, I had to say that. So God reveals himself to Moses. Moses has to realize who he is actually dealing with. Or who's, or better way of putting that, who's dealing with him. Because one of the most wonderful things, and I'm not even going to make a whole point out of it, but I just think it's important to see, is that God knew Moses, didn't he? You know, we often talk about us knowing God, but the wonderful things that God knows us. Intimate. And God called Moses. Moses, Moses. Yeah, I'm the one who protected you in that little ark. 
I'm the one who made sure the princess uh, rescued you. I'm the one who's been with you, who's been with you this whole time. And so the next thing he reveals to him is not just himself, but it's very important to see this. He reveals his plan to his servant Moses. He's going to reveal to him exactly what he's about to do through him. And in some ways, we're going to see whether he likes it or not. We'll talk about that later. But the waiting's over. God is about to move. And this is one of those times I can't help it, that old gospel hymn song that you always hear me quote comes back out again in my mind. You got to move. The song says. And it repeats, you got to move. You got to move, child. You got to move. Why? Because when the Lord gets ready, <laughs> you got to move. <laughs> I just love that because the Lord is ready now. There's no more time for waiting. He's going to tell Moses, go. We're talking about action. Important to see that. The Lord, the God of his father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the important thing for us to see here in this text. It really blessed me. He has not been sleeping. He's not overlooked the sad plight of his people. And I want to stop here. There's another first here in this text. A lot of firsts in, these, in this text. This is the first time in the Bible God refers to the Israelites as his people. These are my people. God has a, a people loved, called, and separated unto himself. And just as he is a God who, who is afar off, completely separate from us, holy, and not to be trifled with, he's also a personal God, a God who has called his people out of the nations to belong to him, out of his mercy, out of his grace. And here's the thing, contrary to how his people may have been feeling at the time, hello, where are you, God? While we're under slavery, while we're being harshly treated, this is what God says. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's just look at the verbs. I have seen. I have heard. I am concerned. I have come down. It's so important for us to see this. Sometimes when God is silent and he doesn't seem to come to the rescue in our time or he allows us a much more lengthy trial than we had ever anticipated, this is what ends up happening. Because I know this because you're human and I'm human. We question, even if we don't say it out loud, does he really care? Or is he just up there silently? unconcerned. If he really did care, why doesn't he do something? I remember ministering to a dear young Christian woman who was really going through a, a very, very long time of a trial and suffering, and it was the formative years of her life that were going to set her life for the rest of her life in many ways. And I had the privilege of walking with her through 
those struggles and trials at that season in her life. And during one of her, our conversations, I remember encouraging her with the truth that God not only knows her suffering, listen, this is important, but he shares it. He suffers with you. He's in it with you. And as, you know, not to pick on her, because I think we would all say this. Um, thank you, Pastor. Those are wonderful, warm words, but is that really true? Does the Bible actually say this? I think I had taught her well. <laughs> Make sure the Bible says it, not just the pastor. Well, I refer to the passage that we had, that we mentioned um, earlier in our call to, uh, in our preparation for worship. And that's Isaiah 63, 9. Isaiah is actually hearkening back to Exodus. And he says this, in all their distress, he too was distressed. The ESV uh, translates it this way. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. But in case uh, you want to get even deeper than this, you remember when the young Saul, or actually he was probably pretty old, when Saul was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, you remember when Jesus met him, the risen, ascended Lord met him on the road to Damascus, you remember what he said to Saul? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute who? Me. Not my church. Why do you persecute me? That's how united God is with his people. And we know now, especially in Christ. So Paul, so um, God says this to Moses, verse 10. So now, I've seen all this, I've suffered with them, and... Um, now I'm on the move. Go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people to the Israel, uh, uh, my people to Israelites out of Egypt. The time has come, is what God is saying. The day you've been waiting for and dreaming, dreaming about, now I myself am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people to Israelites, Israelites out of Egypt. And that's where our last thing we're going to see in this text is so important. God doesn't just reveal himself and his plan. Now he's going to reveal his promise to Moses because uh, as we're going to see, Moses, uh, that dream wasn't so much alive anymore in his heart, at least in terms of his part to play in it. And I think this is, um, as we look at our last section of the message this morning, this, this is the one that really hits home to me personally. Because we see here Moses isn't the same idealistic, naive, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed prospective leader he was some 40 years ago, back then when he was filled with optimism and energy. You know, it's often when you see on the floor of Presbytery, when you see these young pastors-to-be after they're just getting out of seminary and they're excited to go take on the world for, for Christ. Amen. And I remember one older pastor, he had this sad look on his face when this one uh, young man was accepted into the presbytery and he was going to be ordained. And look at this woman, it looked like he was going to cry. And, and I remember him saying, I feel so bad for that guy. <laughs> I'm like, and literally, because I was kind of not super young, but I was, I was kind of in the middle. I'm like, <laughs> but when you look at this text, you say, ah. And if you lived a little while in the ministry, you go, oh. <laughs> See, the pride and the idealism, idealism of Moses' youth 
led him to what back then? It led him to presumption. To believe that he had the ability to rally the troops and deliver them through human effort. Now, as all young people would say, in the name of God, of course. Who was he really trusting? He thought he was all that. But now, this is the truth, the harsh reality of human inability and depravity, right? As he went to thinking that the Israelites were all going to be on his side and happy, they were not. It had left its mark on his aged body and soul. He knew at this point all too well how inadequate he was for the task at hand in and of himself. We'll see evidence of this over and over again as we look at the next two chapters in Exodus. Now, in Stephen's speech, it's interesting. He says, this, this is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? judge. But in a very real sense, paradoxically, in one sense, this was not the very same Moses. In the sense that 40 years in a desert tends to change a man. Yes, it technically was the same Moses, but a very changed man. You know, as I was thinking about it, all I could think of is it can beat the ambitious optimism right at you. Life can. It could take it right out of you. It could pop the balloon, take all the air out. And it certainly changed Moses. It had changed him from a man in his prime, bristling, with self-confidence to an old man with deep doubts about his ability to perform such a great task. His first question shows this. Look with me at verse 11. This starts a whole long conversation where we go around in circles because of Moses here. But Moses said to God, look, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I want you to stop and look at this. This is a far cry from that Moses who thought the people were going to recognize that God, God was using him to rescue them. See, his question is, who am I? Let me put it another way. I want to read between the lines. You got the wrong guy. Who am I to do this? Now, of course, God was going to teach him in the next few chapters here, but it's going to start here. That Moses, you got, you're asking the wrong question. Not who are you. What do you think I've been telling you? Who am I? That's what you have to understand. And notice what God says to him. I. This is God's response to when, when Moses says, who am I? I will be with you. Now, that should have been tremendous encouragement to Moses, giving him great hope, encouragement, and confidence in his call. Um, as humanly impossible as it seemed, he should have been like, well, God's going to be with me, and God's got this. In other words, what we're going to see is this. Yes, Moses, we're glad that you learned this lesson, that as gifted, as qualified, as trained, and as blessed as you are, human strength is not going to get this job done. It's not even going to get you to first base. The task of delivering God's people from the house of bondage and leading them into the promised land, that will only take the mighty hand of God. That's the only thing that could possibly 
get the job done. And that's exactly what God promises Moses. I will be with you. You're just the human instrument that I've chosen to use. D.A. Garrett says this, Moses will not need to be adequate or competent. God himself will be there to do the heavy lifting. Isn't that awesome? I like that a lot. God will be there to do the heavy lifting. As he always is. Like our tasks today. How does that apply to us? Well, Jesus said to his church, because you can't confine it to the apostles because they're not with us anymore. Started with them, but it continues with us. Go and make disciples of all nations. Yeah. I could be frank, I used to think I was going to change the world for God. You know that old saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Sounds great. Until you give yourself fully to that and you get beat down. You get your training for evangelism explosion and it's barely a pop. That's why, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to go to the last sentence of the Great Commission. It's the same sentence that God gave to Moses in our text. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think we need to remember. I wrote in my, my notes here, maybe we need to remember. No, we need to remember. We were never called to change the world. Did you know that? He doesn't say go and change the world. It's not what he says. He says go and make disciples. Just do what I tell you to do and watch me, God says, glorify myself as you simply trust me enough to do what I tell you. Share the gospel. Teach people about me. And in our text here, God gives an extra bit of encouragement by providing a sign. Just what Moses needs, finally. Moses said, I'm going to get a sign, right? Because he needs some encouragement. Well, here's the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Anybody catch that? Uh, God, uh, what kind of sign is this? In other words, this isn't going to happen until after the fact. It's going to happen in the future. It's as if God was saying to him, once you're back here with my people worshiping me, you'll know it was me who you've been talking to this whole time. In other words, what's God's doing here? God's, what is God doing here? God is calling Moses to faith. He's calling him to to trust him, to trust in God's promise, trust in God's plan, even before it gets carried out in space and time. He's calling Moses, listen, to be a man of faith, a man who is led by a vision. One of James Ward's old albums is titled, Faith Takes a Vision. You gotta have the vision. Now, I'm not talking about visualizing your own goals your own dreams, your own plans, and that, that way it will become a reality. No, Moses already tried visualizing his own plans. How'd that work out for you, Moses? Now, he had scars that were left on his psyche because of that. 
No, I'm talking about visualizing in your own mind's eye God's promised future. God's given vision, which will certainly come to pass. As we know, we look back, it certainly came back to pass in the times of the Exodus. And we know that in our times, it will come to pass as well. Maybe not in our time frame, but definitely according to God's perfect, righteous, holy, wise, and good timetable. Listen, we know there's a world to come. God's promised it. We know that there will be a new city that will come down from heaven. And that will be a reality. There will be a home, Jesus said, for all those who have been trusting in him. We will be uh, resurrected and we will go into a new home of the new heavens and the new earth. A home, listen to this, where righteousness dwells. Isn't that where we long for when we see all this political division, when we see all this strife? When we see all this death, we long for a place where righteousness dwells. And Jesus says, I've already won it for you. Take heart. Trust me. Just do what I tell you in the meantime and spread the good news. One day, the Bible tells us, every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Can't beat that. So we live confidently by faith as we await that vision to become a reality. So what do we do today? We preach, we teach, we pray, we evangelize, we forgive, we love, we serve, we minister, we persevere, we fight the good fight, we run the race because God, listen, the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses will keep his covenant. Come what may. And you know what? He sealed it, that covenant, in his blood at the cross. Now, as I come to a close, I wanna, I'm going to lay a big truth bomb on you, and you're going to be like, ah! but it's kind of a cliffhanger for next week. And that's this. The very one who spoke to Moses from the bush, who heard his people's cries, who saw their suffering, entered into it, is the same one who entered into our suffering on the cross at Calvary. I don't know if you know what I'm just saying here. I'm saying Jesus is the one who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Wrap your brain around that. So you remember in the New, New Testament when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain? You might not remember this, but Elijah and Moses appeared. Do you remember that? So the cool thing is that wasn't the first mountain that Jesus met with Moses. He met with Moses right back here. I'm gonna leave you with this to tantalize you a little bit, but I gotta give you a little evidence of that and why I read further in the text. How did God reveal himself to Moses? I am. Tell them I am sent you. John chapter eight, let's fast forward. Jesus is talking about Abraham like he, like he knows him real well. And, and, and he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And the Pharisees are livid. They say, you're not even 50 years old. And you act like you know Abraham? And what does Jesus say? Before Abraham, I am. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is so awesome. I love you, Jesus. And, and I love the fact they, they picked up rocks to stone him. Because even if Jehovah's Witnesses don't get this, 
Even if Mormons don't get this, Jesus is saying, I'm him. I am. Isn't that awesome? That's the God that we serve. You know, I remember there was a woman who was uh, called to take some orphans into a dangerous place and get them out of a place of unrest. And she was very scared and very timid. And one of the young girls she had been teaching about Jesus for many years said to her, um, just remember Moses um, and how God uh, delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And I remember the lady said to the kid, but I'm not Moses. And the child said to her, but God is still God. Brothers and sisters, the God we serve, the God of Moses, God and Father, our Lord Jesus, he's still God, and his will will be done. Do we trust him enough to take part of his program and to continue to share the gospel until he returns? In word and deed, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this call of Moses our brother, your holy servant, the great prophet in the Old Testament, the one who foreshadowed the one greater than him, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Jesus, our call may most certainly was not as dramatic as Moses's, and yet we are still your people called to exercise whatever spiritual gift you've given us for your glory and the good of your church, the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that we would embrace that promise from the heart that, Lord Jesus, you will be with us to the end of the age. May we take heart from that fact and may we continue to live as your people by faith with that vision that you will most certainly accomplish in your good time of consummating your kingdom's reign in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, help us to be faithful until then. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.